Okay. I'm going to read uh, a few verses from Galatians 2, and then we'll wrap up our series on spiritual disciplines. Paul writes this, But we know that no one is made right with God by meeting the demands of the law. It is only through the faithfulness of Jesus, the anointed, that salvation is. Put faith in Jesus, the anointed, so we will be put right with God. It's his faithfulness, not works prescribed by the law that puts us right, puts us in right standing with God, because no one will be acquitted and declared right for doing what the law demands. Then in verse 19, he writes, the law has provided the means to end my dependence on it for righteousness. And so I died to the law, and now I have found the freedom. And these next couple of verses are where I want us to really uh, land by the time we're done. Now I have found the freedom to truly live for God. I have been crucified with the anointed one. I'm no longer alive, but the anointed is living in me. And whatever life I have left in this failing body, I live by the faithfulness of God's Son, the one who loves me and gave his body on the cross for me. I can't dismiss God's grace, and I won't. If being right with God depends on how we measure up to the law, then the anointed sacrifice on the cross was the most tragic waste in all of history. Trust me when I say it says history, exclamation point at the end of that verse. Uh, last night at Kyle Field, uh, a lot of things happened. One of the things that, aside from the obvious results of the game and all the excitement, one of the things that I found humorous and a little bit interesting and sort of telling about human nature, uh, early in the game, Clemson got uh, what's called a sideline warning, and what happens is they warn you once for being too close to the field on the sideline, the second time you get a penalty. So Clemson got a sideline warning because they were in, as a team, uh, they were in a place on the sideline they weren't supposed to be. So here's how that works. Uh, let me see. Is there a laser? Oh, sweet. That's the point. I've never, ever used this, <laughs> but I'm about to use it. Um, so this little box here, you see this little box? Uh, my, I believe this is correct, that the head coach is allowed to be in that box. The players are supposed to be in the green. Everybody else is supposed to be in the green behind the white box. Um, and then, you know, the actual boundary of the field is that front edge of the box. So uh, what happened was Clemson made a big play down the sideline, that opposite sideline. All the players and coaches got excited. They came out in the space. There's a referee that runs down the sideline. And one of the reasons they want you back is so that referee can run with the play and not run into somebody. Well, he ran into somebody because Clemson people were too close to the field, so they got a sideline warning. Okay, um, so here's uh, later in the game, them being very obedient. Uh, after they were, see, this is the head coach, he's in the white box, everybody else is behind it. What cracked me up about this was literally the next play after they got their sideline warning, I looked over at the A&M sideline and it's just total chaos. I mean, everybody's flooded. And the whole game it was like that. We didn't get the benefit of many calls last night, uh, but for whatever reason, we got a free pass on the sideline warning. In fact, here's a play later in the game. Um, and as you can see, this is the boundary of the field. This is that white box that nobody but the head coach is supposed to be in. See, there's kind of the boundary. I forgot I drew on this, sort of. Um, and then there's our head coach, actually, on the field, along with some dude in a red shirt. Um, and they pretty much lived on the field last night, if you paid any attention to this. 
And uh, it cracks me up because it's not that complicated. There's plenty of room behind the box for everyone. It's not that hard to stay out of the box or for the head coach to stay in the box and not get on the field with the players. But whatever lines are drawn, it's just human nature that we're going to keep sneaking past the lines and trying to get a better view, getting distracted from looking at the boundaries and lines and all of that stuff. And it's just one of the weird things about humans, I think. There is a part of us that wants boundaries. We want to be able to told that we want to be told this is a safe zone. This is a good place to be. You probably shouldn't go across this line. Um, we want directions. We want limits. If you've raised children, you discover this over time. They act, as much as they rebel against your limits, there's also a part of them that craves, most of them, that craves uh, certain boundaries and certain limitations, like kind of being given a clearly defined path. But then, as humans, we're constantly drawn to sneak up and get as close to the line as we possibly can, and eventually, either intentionally in rebellion or just because we're distracted by what's going on on the other side of the line, to kind of wander over it. I mean, one of the verses of, of all of the worship songs and hymns that I've ever sung in my life, one of the verses that consistently grabs me when I sing it is in an old hymn when we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We're just, just how we're wired. We're prone to wander past where we know we're supposed to be. Uh, and I say all that to say um, we're not going to talk a lot about rules and laws and that kind of stuff tonight, but uh, I, I'm watching us through this series on spiritual disciplines and thinking about where we are as a people and having a lot of really good conversations. And I really don't want to see this part of our nature play out when it comes to our reaction to this series on spiritual disciplines and to our effort to build into our lives spiritual disciplines. For what it's worth, this series has generated a lot of engagement, conversation, really good feedback, as much as any series as we've done in quite a while. And, and people are saying it's encouraging, that it's helping correct and direct us back to a closer, more deeply connected relationship with Jesus. And I love that. And I want to be sure we embrace the disciplines with our eyes clearly on the purpose of the disciplines so they don't just become another box that we feel like we are supposed to be standing in. And so we don't just enjoy the brief comfort of new boundaries because that's what some of us are prone to do. We learn a new discipline. It becomes a new boundary, a new white box that we're supposed to stand in. Uh, and it provides us some familiarity, it provides us some guidance, but gradually we're going to wander out of it because other things are going to draw our attention and pull us out of the box. And I don't want that to be the story of something that I see the Lord really doing some good with, really putting some roots down for us. And so I want to conclude this series today by doing two things. And here are the two things I want to talk about today. The first is this, that we must clear new paths for lasting rhythms of spiritual disciplines. And the second is for us to remember disciplines will not satisfy us. They're a gift to tether us to Jesus who satisfies us. Okay, so let's talk about this idea of clearing new paths because just like anything new, if we're going to, most of us are at the point in life 
where it's just a fact. If we're going to put something new in, other things have to go out to make space for it. And we've talked about this in little ways as we've talked about individual disciplines. I talked about it some two weeks ago when I talked about simplicity. Um, But spiritual disciplines will not, for any of us, become a sustainable, sustainable source of spiritual nourishment if we don't remove some things from our lives and replace them with new ways of being. So, so here's what I want to do in this section. I want to provide some specific suggestions um, for ways that I think will, uh, for some things that I think will apply to all of us in this process of removing some things and adding some things and clearing some new paths for us uh, to follow when it comes to spiritual growth and spiritual disciplines. This is, uh, these are my suggestions. This is not law. I'm not trying to make rules for anybody. So you should feel free to do business with the Spirit if you don't care for any of these things. But they're things that, uh, for me, seem important and for us, to me, seem important. Okay? So here are a few suggestions that I'll elaborate on a little bit. The first one is this. Clear away some of your attachment to devices. Uh, I, could, I, I did preach uh, a sermon on this, I think about a year ago, and actually intended to spend a lot more time in this sermon on this than I'm going to, but I just think this is almost universal for us right now, um, for us to have the time and the space and the attention to give to being people who are really formed, habitually formed, by the Spirit through spiritual disciplines we're going to have to put away things which have come to consume so much of our time and attention. I'm not going to pretty this one up or try to soft pedal it to you. Most of us know. I mean, this is, this is my experience in my own life, in my own home, and in my conversations with a lot of you. Most of us know that we need to do this, and we just need to decide to do it. You need to speak out loud where some device or some group of devices are taking up too much space in your life, in your heart, in front of your eyes. Uh, You may need to fast from things for a week or a month to break whatever the cycle is for yourself. You probably need to get some accountability, but this is just it. Some of us need change in this area. Um, And my second suggestion is a derivative of the first. It's uh, primarily geared toward those of us who are parents, um, but I think has some implication for all of us uh, who have some kind of influence on somebody around us or younger. But specifically, I want to encourage us to think really critically about what paths we're establishing for our kids and their attachment to devices and their attachment to things that money can buy and their attachments to busyness. I want us to think about what paths we're establishing for them and their need for something to occupy them or to entertain them and how that will impact them to learn to fill their hours and days. Okay, so let me talk about this for a minute because when I have these kinds of conversations with people, um, I think most, when, when I encounter pushback, I think most of the pushback is um, some, it, it's in this range of life is really hard and so I'm doing some things temporarily just to get through the day, which believe me, I understand, um, to I really don't think long-term this has any major impact for me to do this. 
And I'm not a scientist, but first of all, let me just encourage you to go read. (laughs) There's so much research out right now uh, about the second part of that statement, about the long-term implications of the decisions we make with our kids as it relates to this area of our life right now. What I want to say specifically is, or what I want to challenge us to ask is how will what for us often feels really casual, um, really feels, can feel like just getting through the day kind of methods and routines that we're establishing with our kids, how will those things, those methods, those routines, those habits, those norms affect our kids' capacity for things like prayer, for things like solitude and silence, for things like Sabbath, for engaging the scriptures as a meaningful story and engaging the scriptures in disciplined study that is not always that entertaining, for submission, for laying all parts of their lives out to the Lord's authority and to the authority of his people in in some ways, for prioritizing community and spiritual friendship and real human capacity for real human engagement, for sacrifice, for not storing up for themselves treasures on earth. How will the way that we are teaching and shaping our kids and their attachment to the things that we buy them, how will that shape for the long haul their default position in not storing up for themselves treasures on earth? for truly seeking the kingdom first and trusting what they need is going to come from God. And the point here, I want to be really clear, is not that we should expect, that we should change everything with our kids and expect maturity. They're not going to understand everything that we decide in these areas. So the point here is not that we should expect maturity from them in these areas now. The point is that we're responsible as parents, as people who have influence in the lives of people around us, we're responsible to equip them to, number one, be able to see all those things I just listed as having value, having immense value. And so what we model for them and for what, and the ways that we shape their days and hours is going to communicate to them something about relative value of the things that are filling their days and filling their space. So we have a responsibility to equip them to be able to see those things as having value and to leave space in their lives for them so that they can embrace them and grow into maturity in them over time. And what we do now is shaping what they will have the capacity to do later what they will believe is valuable, what they will believe is important in terms of how their time is spent, their attention is directed, their space around them is filled. Will prayer, will solitude, will the Bible have a a chance in our kids' lives based on what we're allowing them to fill their lives with, their days with, their hours with right now? That's the question that I think we have to ask when it comes to clearing new paths so that spiritual disciplines for us and for those whom we've been given authority over, we've been given responsibility for, 
so that spiritual disciplines have a chance to grow and to become our new paths. Uh, my one pitch on this area is if you haven't read, if you have kids and you haven't read this book yet by Andy Crouch, The TechWise Family, uh, I encourage you to go soon and read it. It's short. It's very practical. It's very helpful. You don't have to agree with everything in it, but it's very, very helpful in giving a framework uh, for thinking about these things. Okay? So here's my third suggestion. Look at your earning and your spending and your saving. Okay? I've said let's clear away some of our attachment to devices. Let's look at the way that we're influencing our kids and people around us as it relates to their attachment to devices, to money and to stuff and to busyness, which I talked a lot about two weeks ago. Uh, and now I want to encourage us as adults to look at the way that we're handling money and we're viewing and interacting with money and ask how much of it, how much of the way that we're dealing with money, though probably not obviously evil or sinful, is in some way shielding us from a life that these simple spiritual disciplines are at the heart of who we are and how we're functioning. Two weeks ago, like I said, I talked about simplicity and I, I looked at this, these words of Jesus from Luke chapter eight where he said, a third group of people who hear the message, who hear the gospel, as time passes, the daily anxieties, the pursuit of wealth and life's addicting delights outpace the growth of the message in their hearts. Even if the message blossoms and fruit begins to form, the fruit never fully matures because the thorns choke out the plant's vitality. And I talked a lot two weeks ago uh, about, about busyness and the way that we sort of fill our space as it relates to this kind of thing, and a little bit about money. But I just want to encourage us to ask if we're using money um, on things that pull us into or away from the daily anxieties into or away from a pursuit of wealth. And, and wealth, I think, here in the context of what Jesus says can mean what a lot of us sort of in the American framework think of wealth as like getting rich, but a lot of us would like to sort of excuse ourselves from this part of the sentence because we're not that interested in really getting rich. But I think what he means is pursuing the kind of affluence that makes you not have to worry about money because you have provided for yourself everything that you need for security. And so ask us, are we using our money on things that pull us into or away from daily anxieties, from the pursuit of wealth, and from life's addicting delights? And uh, ask ourselves if our view of and our handling of our money I think this is a big one. I think this is one that if we really crack it open, uh, it, it can become a rabbit hole for us. But if our way of viewing and handling money further chains us to thinking about money and possessions, or if it creates simplicity for us. Money is not inherently evil. Having money is not an evil thing. But your, the way that you view it and the way that you use it and interact with, the, with it is either going to further chain you to thinking about it and dealing with it and being enslaved to the stuff that you have to do with it or that you've bought with it, or it's going to serve as a tool to create simplicity and space in your life for the Lord and for building a life around these spiritual disciplines that we've talked about. It's either going to enslave you to those things or it's going to free you to do what Jesus says, which is seek the kingdom first and trust that all the things that you need will be given to you by God.
So I think there's a question here um, as to whether the things that we're trying to acquire, which we're all doing at some level, because we live in a world where money is literally the currency by which we function in many ways, are the things that we're trying to acquire or that we're already accumulated um, creating or leaving space for solitude, for any of the disciplines, or do our possessions and our obligations to our possessions leave us to try and squeeze spiritual disciplines into the, the narrow margins of our lives? So think about how you earn, how you spend, and how you save money. Is the security that you're working for in this area of your life, for you and for your family, which is, it's not a bad thing to work and to provide for you and your family, obviously, but is the security, the way that you view your needs and your family's needs, does it make a discipline of prayer and the reliance on God that's at the heart of prayer more necessary or less? Everything we do, all the ways that we view our time, our resources, and our money are going to either create uh, a, a reservoir in us that understands our need for God or they're going to start to insulate us from that understanding and make those things seem less necessary. Okay? Um, I want to suggest just a handful of resources if you're interested in doing more reading on all of this, on ways that you can kind of take what we've talked about in this series on spiritual disciplines and embed embed this in your life because I think that's the trick for most of us is I've learned something, I've tried this one or I've tried that one, um, but how am I going to affect real and lasting change? And, you know, a 30-minute wrap-up sermon from me on the series is not going to do it for you. Uh, but here are some good good resources. Um, I've accessed a few of these as I've worked, as we've worked through this series, and I have some familiarity with all of them. Um, the very last one, Life Hacking Spiritual Disciplines, I think is a really cheesy name for a book. Uh, but, and I haven't read it all the way through, but I've skimmed it and found some real uh, helpful. There's a lot in there about how your brain works, about how habits form, and uh, the role of all of this in spiritual disciplines and forming and shaping your life allowing the Lord to form and shape your life through spiritual disciplines. And so I think it's a really good resource, despite the cheesy title. So um, before I finish, I just want to say a couple more things as I move into this second point. I'm convinced, here's kind of my big conviction through all of this. I'm convinced that this thing that Jesus describes, a group of people that as time passes, the daily anxieties, the pursuit of wealth, and life's addicting delights outpace the growth of the message in their hearts. I'm convinced that this is our destiny if we do not do more than desire, just want change. This is where we end up if we, if we don't do more than just desire to be people who seek the kingdom first. There has to be more than a want to. I think the want to is probably universal or really close to it. But without some actual change, I think this is, that's what happens to us. We become a part of this group. I think it takes new paths. We have to clear new paths in our lives. And new paths require leaving old paths and often cleaning out a lot of obstacles that are in our way before the new way becomes visible and familiar and before it becomes our way, our new way. 
And this, what I'm trying to do here is not redirect us to new law, to you should do this discipline and this discipline and this discipline. I'm trying to get us back before those decisions and talk about where our hearts are so that we can order the disciplines by looking in the right direction. It's not about a new law, a new way to earn God's favor. It's not a way to work hard enough to really get Jesus, to really connect to Jesus. This is just a reminder that God has given you freedom in the way that you order your life. And you may have forgotten that. You may be so bound up by all of these things that Jesus lists here that you have forgotten that God has given you freedom in the way that you order your life. And the way that you order your days is the way that you order your life. So however busy you feel, however enslaved you feel by money or possessions, however much you feel like the circumstances of your life have crowded in and started to dictate to you the way that you spend your days, I want to remind you that God has given you freedom to order your days, which is how you order your life. So if we want our lives to tell a different story than this, We have to cut out new paths, and we have to refuse to let life's daily anxieties. We have to refuse to let the pursuit of wealth. We have to refuse to let life's addicting delights order our days and refuse to allow those things to outpace the growth of the message of Jesus in our hearts. And the message of Jesus is this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things that you worry about, that you fill your mind and your lives and your days with, will be given to you. The message is that Jesus has rescued us from the old ways, from our old ways of living and failing and trying to earn God's favor and trying to climb our way to connection with God, and from the old ways of the world that tell us to worry to be filled with anxiety about what's gonna happen tomorrow. The old ways of the world that tell us we have to take care of ourselves and accumulate money and things and fill our lives with activity so we'll be happy and secure. Jesus has come. This is the message that you don't want these things to outpace the growth of in your heart. Jesus has come to rescue you from all of that. He's making all things new. And if you think he can make the whole world new and believe the gospel, but that he can't make your days and your hours new, there's a major disconnect in your experience with the gospel. And Jesus, that's not, that might be conviction if you go, oh yeah, I'm kind of in that place. But Jesus is not really interested in you sitting in the guilt of your conviction. He's saying, good news. I can make your days new and your hours new. Can you believe it? Spiritual disciplines are a way of building our hours and therefore building our days and our lives around the growth of that message in our hearts instead of building our lives around anxiety or accumulating or soothing ourselves with other pleasures. So that's the last thing I want to do today is remind us that disciplines will not satisfy us. They are a gift to tether us to Jesus who satisfies us. They are a means to this end that we read at the beginning of the sermon. I found the freedom to truly live for God. I've been crucified with the anointed one. I'm no longer alive, but the anointed is living in me. 
In whatever life I have left in this failing body, I will live by the faithfulness of God's Son, the one who loves me and gave his body on the cross for me. Can we believe that Jesus is enough? Can we believe and actualize and live our lives as though it's true that waiting for or even doing without the goodness and the security that we're trying to fill our lives with and the things that we're buying and accumulating and filling our time with, can we believe that waiting or even doing without those things offers as much goodness? I asked this question two weeks ago as what we'll find if we do without. Can we believe doing without those things offers as much goodness, more goodness, if we let God provide for us? I think all of this ultimately tells us something about our hope. Um, I think our impatience with the message of Jesus, which tells us we don't have to fill our lives in these ways, and our, our wandering out of the box because of all the things we see going on, um, often suggests we lack hope in we, we lack hope that the goodness that we're in such a hurry to acquire with all of those things will come if we wait on Jesus for it. And if we stop filling our lives and we seek him and there's his kingdom first. And so I think this pushes us all the way back. We can talk about all the how-to we want, but it pushes us all the way back to this question of, do I believe in the hope of the gospel? Do I believe in the hope of the message? When Jesus says, I see you, and if you seek me, everything you need is found in me. If we truly embrace the freedom to live for him, to die with him in the way that Paul articulates here, to die to all of the things of the world cluttering up our minds and our lives and our time, if we truly embrace the freedom to let him live, because that's what Paul says, I, it's not me, it's not my agenda, it's not my security, it's not my plan that's working here anymore. I am making myself available, available for Jesus to live his life through me. And that, by the way, what that looks like, the life of Jesus that Paul says is supposed to be lived through us is described really clearly in Scripture. It's not a mystery. Who Jesus is, what he cares about, and the life that he wants to see flow through us. Do we have hope enough to embrace the freedom to let him live his life through us? Our ability to do that, I think, is it requires what I'm talking about, which is the clearing of new paths. Taking out some stuff uh, that needs to be taken out and the putting into place some things that just aren't there. And, and in this season, we've been talking about the rhythms of spiritual disciplines as, I, as an essential part of putting that into place, of clearing those new pathways. But even that endeavor is not first about what we will do or about the practicalities of that. It's first about what we believe and what we love and where our hope is. And our hope is in the resurrection. So when Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, and he calls us to essentially give up our lives and let the life of Jesus be lived through us, it sounds like death, because it is. But our hope is that what is raised in its place is better. 
And we just don't believe it a lot of the time. In the practical ways that we live our hours and our days, we're just not convinced that that's true. And so my prayer for us, my hope for us, is not, listen, I've enjoyed this series, I've enjoyed teaching it, I've loved hearing from the other people who have taught, I think there's been some invaluable stuff that we've covered over the last few months. And I don't want to in any way minimize any of the specifics of that. But what I'm after is not that today or three months from now or three years from now, I can say, look at how great we all are at spiritual disciplines. That's not the goal. The goal is to see the opportunity we have to reorder our lives by reordering our days, by reordering our hours in the belief that ordering our hours and our days and our lives around Jesus is enough and will give us all that we need. Let's pray. Father, we are human and fail and frail and fickle and we will not be perfect until you perfect us. Until you finish the job and come and make all things new, including all of the broken places in our hearts and our lives. But I pray that we would not um, do what we're so prone to do, which is just to kind of shrug and say, I'll never be perfect. So, you know, I'm here every Sunday and I'm going to Com Group most weeks and I truly love Jesus in my heart. So I'm just going to muddle through. You came to give us real life. So I pray that you would expose and bring a sword to the fear in us that causes us to shrink back from this call to let it all go, to give you freedom and authority to examine all parts of our lives and to be honest about whether they are shaping us for the kingdom or whether they are preoccupying us so that we're trying to squeeze the kingdom in. May it not be said of us in the long haul that we were people who did a pretty good job of squeezing Jesus in. May we be people who heed the call of Christ to come and give our whole lives, who grab with both hands on to these words of Paul, which say, I go with him even to death. And now he lives through me. And he makes all things new. May we be those people by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name.